Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in? Jay Talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up on BZ. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley Jay. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in. To see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. WBZ. You are Jay talking. We're live midnight to five. I'm Bradley Jay. How do you do? We don't really worry about nuclear disaster like we used to. I don't know if you remember the... Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't know if you remember that are a member of the generation that really didn't expect to live long and prosper. They really, at least I expected to get blown up in a, in a white hot blast. And so I didn't really plan much for the future. Things are different these days, but there are still nuclear issues in the news. I want to set the Wayback Machine to 1986 and talk about the Ricky Vic Summit and related issues. And I have an, um, a book here, An Impossible Dream, Reagan, Gorbachev, and the World Without the Bomb. And I have the author, Guillaume Serena. Hello, sir. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Let me see here. Where do we start with this one? Let's go back to... Oh, well. Uh, let's, let's start with the... In your, in your book's prologue, I really like what you do. You go through a launch sequence. I think that gets I think that gets the blood going. Can you do what you did in the prologue and talk about what is involved in a launch sequence to I think it makes it brings an acuteness to the whole thing. Sure. Well, we start the book when Ronald Reagan starts his second term and when Mikhail Gorbachev in the USSR takes power. All of that happens in uh, January and March 1985. And at that time, the U.S. and the Soviet Union haven't had high-level talks in six years. So everybody's very impatient in Washington to meet the new guy in Moscow, who's much younger than his predecessors. His three predecessors died in a very uh, short sequence of three years. So everybody's wondering who's the new guy in Moscow and if it's possible to do business with. Uh, the context, obviously, is the Cold War and the arms race. Uh, in the mid-80s, uh, um, it's tens of thousands of nuclear warheads that can be counted on the face of Earth, and 95% of them are held by the U.S. 
and by the Soviet Union. So the two leaders somehow at the same time think that's too much and we need to put a hold on that. And they're going to decide to meet in Geneva in 1985 and to start to talk about it. So what I'm actually asking you to do right now is to run through a launch sequence for a missile launch like you do in the prologue. Right. So, um, you know, at the time and still today, you have three different uh, ways to launch a nuclear attack. Uh, You can have an aircraft bomber um, that's moving across the the, the sky and that's uh, difficultly identified. You can have submarines, obviously, uh, who are invisible. And you have the land bases uh, in the U.S. and in, and, and in the Soviet Union. So basically, if uh, the president of the United States wants to launch a nuclear attack, he has to have a code and to give an order. And all the way down the chain needs to arrive to somebody who's called a missileer, who's an employee of the U.S. Air Force in a submarine, in an aircraft, or in a land uh, base. And that person is actually not alone. It's actually two people who have to join effort to put two keys together in the machine once they receive the code. They have to double check, triple check the code, and they have to turn the key at the same rhythm at the same time. If not, the missile doesn't launch. That's how it works. Um, in the United States, the nuclear warhead is placed 24 hours 7 on the top of the missile. For example, the Chinese don't do that. Uh, they don't deploy the warhead. It, it stands in a different room, which is, in a way, some kind of safer, but, of course, uh, takes a little more time. So that's the process. Okay. What was the stated purpose of the meeting in uh, Reykjavik in 86? What did they say they wanted to get done? Okay, well, they first met in Geneva in 85, but uh, between uh, Geneva and Reykjavik in October 86, you have in between an event that everybody heard about, which is called Chernobyl. In Chernobyl, in the USSR, uh, you have this uh, dramatic accident in that nuclear plant. Um, And that really scares Gorbachev and the Soviets uh, because they realize their infrastructure uh, is pretty old, that the uh, common chain is pretty complicated. So within the, within the context I just told you about a few minutes ago, Gorbachev, after Chernobyl, decides to write a letter to Reagan and says, look, I know we decided to meet next year in Washington and then in Moscow, but I think it would be good to have an informal meeting somewhere on neutral ground in between our two countries so we can discuss arms control and maybe start to talk to uh, limit or even diminish the numbers of nuclear weapons. So that's what happens. Uh, Reagan receives the letter in uh, July 86, and they agree to meet less than two months before, which leaves really little time to prep a summit like that on such crucial issues. Are you familiar with an exercise in approximately 83, three years before, called Able Archer? Uh, yeah, there's been several uh, occasions where, you know, things went wrong. Like even in 1980, in uh, Damascus, Arkansas, uh, you have a nuclear weapon uh, uh, on a Titan II missile uh, that, 
you know, was launched by accident after a fire broke up in the silo. Uh, there was only one dead person, but this could have been a true nuclear explosion and a disaster. We have records of uh, several dozens of incidents since World War II until today of, you know, aircraft being forgotten on the runway uh, with the nuclear weapons, of uh, uh, collisions between two American uh, aircraft above Spain in the 60s, and the nuclear weapon was lost. There's many occasions like that. And yeah, we're playing with fire. So in 1983, it was particularly scary because it was, well, it was an exercise in Europe that the Russians thought was an excuse to, to set up a first strike. And I, there's a there's a series on this a mini series that's really good, and it talks about a spy that the East sent to the West to try to find out if the West really thought they could uh, pull off a first strike. And the spy learned that the West did not think they could pull off a, a first strike, and they learned and he learned that this was just an exercise. But right. anyway, he brought the information back to his superior. His superior did not pass the information on because he wanted a war. And so the top dogs still thought that the, that the United States thought a first strike could succeed. And as I understand it, it, it got close enough so maybe 11 nuclear warheads actually got were fueled in the Soviet Union ready to go. Mm -hmm. so, so it's very scary. There's a, there's a similar uh, mistake uh, in the late 70s under President Carter one night, he's a, a national security advisor, receives a call uh, in the middle of the night uh, from the joint uh, military chief of staff saying, we have about 100 uh, missiles that were launched from Moscow. What do we do? And uh, Brzezinski said, well, why don't you double check and call me back in five minutes? Uh, the phone rings again. Five minutes later, uh, the military guy says, well, it's a mistake. It's not 100. It's 1,000. Don't you think you should wake up the president? And Brzezinski says, well, yeah, he decides not to wake up his wife, you know, next to him in his bed, because 10 minutes later, Washington would be, would be wiped away. And as he prepares to phone to the president, the phone rings again. And the military um, uh, guy says, well, sorry, it's a mistake uh, on our end. It's a software mistake. There's nothing was launched. Wow. Uh, Stories like that are, there are many of them. Reagan Gorbachev and a world without the bomb. Uh, the author is Guillaume Serena, and he's with us. By the way, the introduction is by Mikhail Gorbachev, which is pretty impressive. I'm very, pretty impressed by that. And now, thank you. Yeah, that's that's something. Did you do you do you know him? Did you speak to him? Yeah, I went to meet him in Moscow actually uh, about four years ago. Took me one year to get him, but I got him, and it was a, a wonderful, uh, very strong experience as a journalist um, to meet with him. Yeah. Do you think that he's kind of more of a enlightened, decent human being than most of those folks over there? Yes, actually, he's way more popular in the Western world than he is in Russia. You know, at least in Europe, uh, he's really being seen as a hero. Um, because, uh, in, you know, when the Berlin Wall fell in November 89, he restrained, you know, he could have made you know, one phone call and say, you know, shoot all these people, and he did not do that. Uh, probably a lot of his predecessors would have done that for sure. Uh, so, 
he's he's really popular in the in Western Europe and probably in the United States as well. But in Russia, he's seen as the one who buried the Soviet Union. Yeah, and so he's not he, uh, popular at all. He didn't last very long, and is that because they? They saw that they felt he was giving away the farm. They had to get him out of there. No, I mean, uh, you know, he lasted until the Soviet Union lasted. You know, he was the last in power. And when in Christmas um, 91, the Soviet Union imploded, you know, he was just removed and replaced by Boris Yeltsin. But then it was Russia, Federation and Russia and not the Soviet Union anymore. So he lasted about six years. Okay, Guillaume, now let's get back to the, the crux of our, our biscuit here. Actually, one more, one more question about the context. You mentioned Chernobyl, and in, that, uh, in the text that runs at the end, the, sort of, the text that runs after the Chernobyl miniseries, it says, it gives some facts, and it said it's felt that Chernobyl was one of the one of the main reasons that the Soviet Union collapsed, is that possible? Well, I mean, it's easy to say that right now. At the time, uh, it was probably not seen that way. Um, but definitely, it was a proof of the obsolescence and the terrible um, state of, of the Soviet infrastructures, for sure, and the chain of command and bureaucracy, and basically a system very dysfunctioning. Also, was the tell me about the Danilov affair, or can you flesh that out? Was that something that that exacerbated yeah, tensions as well? Exactly. Right before, uh, right around the Chernobyl time in the spring '86, uh, there was uh, that um, Danilov, who was an American uh, journalist. Uh, he was the correspondent for U.S. News and World Report in Moscow, and he was arrested by the KGB. KGB. Uh, saying he was a spy, and of course he was not. Uh, but that created a lot of tension. Uh, he was released by the Soviets because the Americans released uh, a, a Soviet spy they, they had arrested. You know, it's this kind of Cold War story that we see in novels and, and movies. So they did an exchange, uh, and that definitely created some tension uh, between the Geneva first meeting, and Reykjavik, the second one. Okay. Where, where did they do that exchange? Is that done in Berlin or in Russia? Uh, they flew Danilo from Moscow to Frankfurt, uh, West Germany, okay. and then from West Germany to, to the U.S. All right. So the, the expectations for Reykjavik weren't really to get a lot done. They were just kind of to, to an informal meeting for later formal meetings, but it didn't work out that way. I guess now I'd kind of open it up to you to really drill down and put a micro, a a, a magnifying glass on mm -hmm. the events of the couple of days, three days or so in real detail in Reykjavik, if you could do that. From the arrival to, sure. I, I know you know all the details and I love details, so take your time. We have the luxury of time. Okay, thank you very much. Um, yeah, well, the expectations are actually different uh, from the two parties. Um, for sure, the Soviets want to talk about nuclear weapons and to, if possible, diminish, reduce their number in a drastic way. Uh, they also uh, expect to talk 
um, really uh, strongly about the SDI, which was the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was a plan that Reagan had and announced in 1983, and that was nicknamed Star Wars by the media. And I can go, I can get back to that uh, later because that's a very important piece mm-hmm. in what happened. Um, so that's the expectations. That's the plan uh, from uh, on the Gorbachev side. On the American side, uh, they come with a different perspective. They do want to talk about nuclear weapons, but the Americans also want to talk about uh, many other issues like human rights, like the Afghanistan situation, because Afghanistan is occupied by the Soviet Union since uh, 1979. Uh, they want to talk about also hot spots of the Cold War, you know, in, in, um, in Central America and in Africa, for example. So um, uh, the, the Reagan White House gets ready. You know, they get memos from ambassadors, from the CIA, uh, trying to get into the head of Mikhail Gorbachev in the weeks ahead of the summit. And on the other hand, in Moscow, you have a pretty unified um, uh, power there. Um, Gorbachev has to deal with different institutions within the political system there. There's the Communist Party, and there's the Soviet Supreme, and there is the Politburo, which is a handful of old men who have actually the power, and Gorbachev being the secretary general of the party and the leader of them. And they basically agree uh, that Gorbachev can have a blank check and negotiate with Reagan whatever would be good for the Soviet Union. So these are the expectations and the preparation on both sides. Um, The summit happens um, on a weekend, on a Saturday and a Sunday uh, of 1986 in Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland. And Iceland is exactly midway between the two countries. And they agreed on that city uh, because Iceland is not a big power. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So nobody would get, you know, jealous or upset uh, if it would have been, let's say, in London, for example, which was uh, studied at the point. Um, So you have two delegations, uh, pretty small uh, on both sides. Uh, Reagan comes with about... Uh, six or seven really close advisors and less cl- less uh, close advisors as well, some diplomats and uh, defense people. And it's about the same on the on the Soviet side. And they meet in a house right outside of Reykjavik called Hovdi House, which is, you know, it's a nice house, but it's not that comfortable. You know, you have uh, it's a two-story house uh, made out of wood. Um, it's on a cliff. You can see the Arctic Ocean from the windows, and basically, this is where it's going to happen. The the heads of state and the foreign um, ministers and secretary of state will discuss on the first floor, 
And on the second floor, you would have the teams of advisors uh, talking to each other and get documents ready. Um, so that's that's to set the the situation. And on the first Saturday morning, um, uh, Reagan is supposed to host the first round of talks. So he's there first, and uh, Gorbachev's limousine arrives. And you have members of the press outside, you know, photographers, cameramen, uh, all the big agencies are there. But they are not allowed to cover the talks. Nobody really knows in the media what they will exactly talk about. Of course, the, con the context is the arms race, but nobody really knows what's going to happen. So the first meeting um, is basically the two leaders breaking the, the ice and saying, oh, it's nice to meet you. We haven't seen each other since 85 in Geneva. And um, they start pretty quickly uh, to talk right away about nuclear weapons. Um, and Gorbachev is very straightforward. He says, look, uh, we both said a couple of months ago that a nuclear war cannot be won and that a nuclear war should not be started. And we both agree on that. And it's true. You know, Reagan has a very old record of saying, you know, he wants to get rid of nuclear weapons. And Gorbachev, for sure, after Chernobyl, agrees with that. So um, the talks uh, start, uh, you basically have Gorbachev on one side of a table, uh, Reagan on the other side. They have Each of them have an interpreter who are also note-takers. And sometimes you have Edward Shevardnadze, the foreign affairs minister from the Soviet Union, and George Schultz, the secretary of state, joining at But, some point for some of these meetings. We're at the summit. You've set the scene, the physical scene. You've sat the the uh, main characters down, and they start their negotiations. They start talking about what they want, and Gorbachev is frank, and take it away from here. Yeah, so on that first morning, uh, they break the ice. Uh, they're happy to see each other again, but Gorbachev is extremely direct, and he says, look, We both decided we don't want a nuclear war. It should never be started. Um, and in Geneva, uh, they agreed to reduce, to work on an idea of reducing 50% of uh, nuclear warheads, um, which are about 6,400 to 6,800 on both both sides, uh, which is, of course, huge. Um, so during that first day, uh, they're first going to work on the intermediate range missile, um, which are not the intercontinental one. Basically, it's a couple of hundred miles possibility uh, to target. Uh, and of course, this is very crucial in Europe, because at the time, if you remember, Europe is divided into east and west, and you have nuclear weapons on both uh, sides of the Iron uh, Curtain. Um, so at, at, at the end of this first day, which is not the most dramatic one, uh, I'll about the second day in a little bit, but at the end of this first day, the two leaders agree um, to cut intermediate missile uh, uh, numbers. 
And that will be the following year, in 1986, translated into a treaty, the first really treaty called the INF Treaty, uh, that you might have heard about in the news recently between Trump and Putin. Um, so that's, that's the first agreement. They, they reach an agreement that first, that first day. Uh, but you can see the tension. You can feel when you read the conversations between the two that there's jokes, that there's provocations, that there's moments of tension. And during that first day already, Gorbachev talk about Star Wars. Uh, he says it's a problem for him. So let me roll back a little bit about uh, the SDI, mm -hmm. if, if you want, Brad. Yes, yes, that'd be great. Okay, so it, SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, is an idea that Reagan talked about in March 83. And basically he said, look, the Soviets have thousands of missiles aimed at us. If they launch an intercontinental missile, it will take about 25 to 30 minutes going through the North Pole to reach our, our ground, to reach Washington, D.C., or New York, or whatever the target is. And Reagan says, you know, uh, we could have and we should have the technology to destroy this missile in flight. And he comes with the idea of um, launching satellites all around the Earth equipped with laser beams. So in that idea, when a Russian missile is launched, uh, the satellite above Earth would uh, launch a, basically a laser uh, on the missile to, in order to destroy it. Uh, when this idea was uh, talked about in a televised uh, speech, uh, the, the political community and even the scientific community in the United States is really uh, surprised and really against it. Uh, you can see all the scientific, all the American scientists saying that's not doable, that's not realistic. People say it's going to be extremely expensive. It's going to cost hundreds of billions of dollars, and we don't know exactly how long it will take us to get there. Uh, but Reagan makes the promise um, to the American people that SDI will happen. So SDI is actually taken very seriously by the Soviets. And in my research and my investigation and interviews, I talked to Gorbachev's nuclear advisor, and he told me that the, the Russians had the same idea a little bit before, in the late 70s, uh, but that they gave up that idea uh, because probably too expensive for them. Um, so anyway, uh, in Reykjavik, Gorbachev said, hey, uh, you know, you promised SDI to the American people, but you are starting to arm space. And we cannot arm space. We have a non-proliferation treaty that we need to respect. And we have an ABM treaty, which is a defense missile treaty that we need to respect. Um, and Reagan uh, gets upset and says, no, I, I promised that and I will not uh, change my mind on that. Um, Reagan insisted so that, that this was a yeah. defensive weapon, but the the Russian, the Soviets said a weapon is a weapon, and they really believed it could exactly. be used uh, as an offensive weapon. Offensively, 
Yeah, that, that, that's correct. Anyway, if you have the technology for defense, it means you have it for attack as well. Mm-hmm. So they didn't take Reagan um, seriously on that. They really thought it was actually a weapon to destroy them. Um, so that first night, uh, the two teams uh, separate and they agree to work on these numbers of uh, reducing intermediate missile category by category, submarine by submarine. Um, and the two teams uh, work all night long in Hovdi House while the two presidents um, go to bed and go to sleep. And the next day, on the Sunday, uh, that's where the most crucial thing happens. Um, it's really dramatic. When I was reading the conversations, um, it's, it really struck me as a theatrical, dramatic moment. Um, these two leaders are there in the same small dining room with their foreign ministers. And basically, Gorbachev says, well, why don't we get rid of all nuclear weapons? You know, we agreed on intermediate range missile. Uh, why don't we try to get rid of all nuclear weapons? And this is what I propose. And the Soviets come with a very specific plan that they had prepared and that really take the Americans by surprise. And basically, the Soviets say, we can take a two times five-year period, so a total of 10 years, where we would decrease, reduce, and eliminate all nuclear weapons and all missiles, and we will build a trust and verify system on both sides, meaning that the Soviets would come to the U.S. to make sure the Americans destroy their missiles, and the reciprocity is true. And during that 10 years period, you can do research and development of your Star Wars project. But please do it inside the laboratory. Don't deploy it in space. And that's where you're going to have two hours of very intense, dramatic moments uh, when Gorbachev really pushes and plays all his cards um, where Shevardnadze, his foreign minister, is almost crying, saying it's our duty for the next generation to get rid of these weapons. Uh, we made so many concessions. Why can't you do the same? And what's interesting at that moment, that afternoon on a Sunday, is that George Schultz, the Secretary of State, appears to agree with the Soviets. And his interrupting several times Reagan, making the Soviets recap the proposal and insisting and saying, look, this is a window in history that we never had before and that we might never have in the future. I think that's a pretty good deal. Uh, But Reagan seems extremely hesitant. He gets notes from uh, the defense secretary team who are advising him not to make a deal with the Soviets, uh, mostly because we can't really trust them. And at the end of the day, Reagan says, I can't accept that. I want to be able to deploy uh, SDI in space within 10 years, even though we know now, and they probably knew at the time, that it was not possible. SDI still doesn't exist. Why did he stick with that? Because of his promise? He didn't want to be embarrassed? So that's really the big question, Bradley. And 
Everybody has different opinions about that. I think it's really an intimate decision that President Reagan did. He said he didn't want to break that promise. He also knows that two weeks after that meeting, there are the midterm elections that actually the Republican Party will lose. And um, also the fear of appearing weak. Um, so he missed that occasion. Um, when uh, George Schultz makes his press conference one hour after the end of the failure of the talks, he's on stage, it's live on American television at night, and Schultz tells what happens, and he's exhausted, he has tears in his eyes, and he says, yeah, uh, we failed. And uh, on Air Force One, uh, bringing back the president and his crew to Washington, you have an amazing conversation between his national security advisor, John Poindexter, and members of the press, where he actually tells them what happened, and where you have all these you know, famous anchor, anchors and journalists realizing that we were so close to a historic um, agreement. So the way you tell it is that but for President Reagan, we could have a, a world with practically no nuclear weapons now. Well, that's, who knows exactly if it would have been implemented, you know, if it would have been plausible to achieve that. But the deal would have been signed, yes. Um, the reality is that uh, a couple of years later, his successor, George H.W. Bush, did sign the first reduction treaty called START with Gorbachev in 1988, which cuts drastically the numbers of nuclear warheads. So it, Reykjavik was a failure, but also a success in that. And then you had START II, and even now we are under what we call the new START treaty, which is START IV, which was signed in 2010 between Russia and the United States. Um, so it did have a major impact. But um, today we are still living with the threat of 13,865 nuclear warheads on the planet. So, yeah, the, the lesson of Reykjavik is if they stroke a deal, we would probably indeed live in a different world today. I have two questions before we go to the next break. And one is, it seems like the two hang-ups on saying and on agreeing with the deal was one, verification and two uh and being embarrassed and losing face about going back on a promise even though the promise was something that technologically couldn't be delivered and everybody kind of knew it as far as the verification if you can verify half why can't you verify all if they were willing to go with the reduction at all and if you can verify any reduction why wouldn't you be able to trust and verify in total reduction absolutely Absolutely. Uh, they, they really worked on that system, and it worked under the START treaties. Um, um, basically, you had American military people in the Soviet Union, you know, making sure the missiles were taken away from their base. And they were witnessing that and taking notes and counting them. And the same happened here in, in America uh, from the Soviet military. So actually, Reykjavik set a frame of negotiation and a system that could work today. Uh, if we had leaders in the world today wanting to talk about that, reducing or eliminating, eliminating nuclear weapons, 
we would know how to do that. Okay. It's complicated. It takes time, but it's possible. I have a few more questions, and I hope you have a little bit more time. If we can take a two-minute break here, I'll ask them to you. This is a, this is a book you ought to get. I know you, you folks are history people, and this is very recent history, an impossible dream, Reagan, Gorbachev, and a world without the bomb. And we live with the, the results of what happened today. It's WBZ. What are you talking about? Bradley J. I'm stepping out with my Bradley. Got Jay talking on all night. Jay talking. Lock 1030 on the Bradley BZ Radio. All right. WBZ News Radio 1030. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah. We gotta talk. Well, when can we talk? Over there is a very capable radio. 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 Get me someone on the other end of that radio. Yes, Bradley J, you know. Bradley J, J talking. You hear him talking on your radio. I can hear you. WBZ News Radio 1030. Guillaume Serena, this is great stuff, an impossible dream. Reagan Gorbachev and a world without the bomb, focusing on the Reykjavik summit in 1986. So, a failed opportunity, but it did set up a, a template, so we did get some improvement. And let's, let's fast a bit, well, all the way forward, I guess. Now there are more players, nine to be exact, I believe, seven or nine who have nuclear weapons. How does that affect any future negotiation? Are, does India and Pakistan have, do mm -hmm. they have enough to, that has to be considered? Or is, is Israel really the only nuclear force that you need to consider other than the, uh, the uh, Russia and the U.S.? Yes, you're right. Uh, there are nine countries now who, are, who have nuclear weapons. Uh, Russia is number one with 6,500. The United States right behind 6,185 warheads. These are official numbers uh, from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, which is a well-respected think tank. And they just released their report the other day. Uh, behind that, you have France, China, the UK, Pakistan and India, each of them have about 150 nuclear weapons. You have Israel and then now North Korea, who we think have about 20 to 30 uh, nuclear warheads. Uh, so, yeah, times have changed. You know, in the 80s, um, you had these two giants. Of course, it was extremely tense, as we saw in Cuba, for example, in 62. But these two players were quite rational. Today, we have a way more unpredictable and irrational and volatile international situation. Uh, North Korea, of course, we don't know, but look at the situation in the South China Sea. Look at the Indian-Pakistan border on Kashmir. You know, um, they're shooting at each other uh, with guns on a pretty regular basis these last uh, few years. Look at Iran. Uh, look at um, Look at Syria and Ukraine. You know, this is still pretty unstable and not very unclear still. So 
There's also the fear that China is not really telling the truth about their nuclear weapons. They declare that they have 290 warheads. It might be way more than that. It's difficult to verify. So you have a situation that actually kind of got worse in terms of nuclear weapons and uh, international relations. Um, today, the tensions between uh, the United States and Russia, you know, are quite uh, important. Um, so, yeah, um, the idea is that we're still living under that threat with a situation that's way more unstable and where the concept of deterrence uh, doesn't really work anymore. Um, we all grew up with that concept, right? Uh, you grew up in the U.S. Uh, Bradley, I grew up in France, in Europe. And that's what we learned at school. You know, deterrence is good. We know that, you know what an atomic bomb can do because we saw that in Japan. So we know we, want, we don't want to use it anymore. And if we have about the same number, well, we can, you know, look at each other and never use that. But that concept, you know, is, it's basically based on the fact that humans are supposed to be flawless. And it's, it's kind of a miracle that we didn't have a nuclear explosion. Uh, yeah, in, it is. It's in, also kind of a miracle that a terrorist haven't gotten a hold of a tactical or smaller weapon and use that. I'm surprised by that. Absolutely. And now we have the hacking issue. Uh, we have the terrorist issue. We have the accident possibility. Uh, Remember that today, one nuclear warhead is 3,000 times more powerful than the one that was dropped on Hiroshima. Mm. Uh, and on one single missile, you can have three or four of them. Right. So we're, that's the situation today. And I would like to add as well that that costs a bunch of money. Um, each year within the um, Department of Defense, budget of the United States, it costs around $16 billion each year just to maintain the nuclear arsenal. So just, for, ma just for maintenance of the existing arsenal. Yeah. The proposal in the budget of 2020 is $16.5 billion for the National Nuclear Security Administration, basically to maintain a weapon that we will never use. Uh, that can be hacked, that can be that can blow up by accident, who or her can be stolen by a terrorist. So why don't we never talk about that? You know, right now it's a presidential campaign. Uh, nobody asks ever these questions to the candidates. True. Um, can't we use that money for something else, for example? You know, for a smaller country like France, where I'm from, uh, France has 300 nuclear warheads. It still costs five billion euros every year. So let's open the debate. I have a time for one more kind of open-ended question. Reagan and Gorbachev, were particular, and Soviet Union, were particular situation it seems like they were really desperate. And Putin, he's not about to let anyone see he's desperate. Oh, what is the situation in Russia compared to the Soviet Union? Are they are they down and out? Are they desperate there? And how different is a Putin than a Gorbachev? And this is, I guess this is a big question for a short period of time. President Trump's style, as particularly meeting in private, is, is meeting in private a better thing or a worse thing for 
effectiveness and for safety, etc.? Well, I can't really answer you, Bradley, on the Russian situation today. I'm not an expert on Russia today. Uh, definitely the two characters of, of Putin and Gorbachev are extremely different. And from what I know, they don't get along personally. Um, but um, on what you asked about Trump's style of negotiating, uh, remember the Helsinki summit they, they had a few months ago? Yeah, yes. Um, well, it seems like this summit was not prepared. Uh, when I researched for that book uh, with the Nas American National Archives and the Soviet Archives, you can tell that it takes a whole lot of preparation, of negotiations on lower levels, uh, of cables, of hundreds of pages of notes. Uh, you do have to have, under U.S. law, a note taker. There's a, there's a law called uh, the National Archives uh, Bill in the United States that requires that the White House and the uh, State Department and Defense Department recording everything what's going on. During Did that happen? Discussion. Was it recorded? From what we know, it looks like no one was there. How, uh, so why isn't, why isn't that a huge issue? Gee whiz. It is a huge issue. It is a huge wow. issue. If you want historians to look at what really happened 20 years from now, we will have nothing. Maybe. Wow. Perfect place to end. Thank you so much for all your research and your hard work. If you go and meet a, a former boss, Gorbachev, again, can I go, please? <laughs> I will let you know. Okay, thanks. But thank you for your invitation, Bradley. Absolutely. Great job. Guillaume Serena, An Impossible Dream. Reagan Gorbachev and a world without the bomb. And you can really, really get details. Get the book, because there are a whole lot more details. And the, the research is unbelievable. He had access to, well, he had access to Gorbachev and, and other important people. Fantastic. Good for you, sir. It's WBZ. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.